91.3 KBCS, Music and Ideas, listener-supported radio from Bellevue College. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6, 2021 insurrection held an eighth hearing last week. Local documentary photographer Nate Gowdy, whose work has graced the cover of Time magazine, has been photographing the Trump campaigns and rallies for years and was at the nation's capital on January 6th last year, taking photos for Rolling Stone magazine. He has a photo book coming out soon titled Insurrection, featuring over 120 of his photos from the event. Coming up is an excerpt of a KBCS interview with Gowdy and the book's editor, Lisa Van Dam Bates. You'll start with some tape Gowdy shared with us from the January 6th mob attack of the nation's capital. Next, local photographer Nate Gowdy starts by describing his flight to Washington, D.C. I knew it was going to be weird when I got on the plane from Atlanta to Baltimore. Half the plane was wearing red hats and such, MAGA merch, and the other half were just people trying to get from one place to another. On this plane, half the crowd kept trying to antagonize everyone else. They kept starting chants of USA, USA, and and Trump, and when someone booed them, uh, someone yelled, go back to Venezuela, you know, and it was just really like, whoa, this is supercharged. And then from the train from Baltimore to D.C., when I got to Union Station, everyone was looking for Walmart. <laughs> so I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, and so this is going to be different, you know, because usually I don't go to D.C. and like, where's where's the closest Walmart, you know, and and so I, I got a little bit of rest, but not enough. And so the morning of the, the 6th, I'm kind of dragging because I've been pulling long days and covering the Senate runoffs in uh, Georgia, which were historic on their own. That morning, I was walking up the mall, and I know I'm running late to Trump's rally. I'm probably missing a few speakers, so I'm, I'm walking at a pretty good clip. And the mall is sparse. It's pretty empty. But there's this big gang walking toward me. I can't place them, but I have a strong hunch that they're right-wing militants because uh, I recognize the leader with the bullhorn who happens to be a Seattle-area proud boy from Auburn named Ethan Nordane. And uh, they know him as Rufio Pan Man because that's his nickname. Uh, if you recognize that, that's from uh, the movie Hook. That's where they got the name Proud Boys. So I recognize him, so I'm certain there's Proud Boys in here, but I, I don't know if it's a mash of paramilitary outfits. Obviously, the Oath Keepers were there that day, and, and then uh, members of the Three Percenters movement. They call themselves that because uh, they believe the hero myth that uh, only 3% of American colonists rebelled against the British king's tyranny in the American Revolutionary War. 
I'm crossing paths with them, and I've photographed Proud Boys before, and, and I've learned from experience that they're very aware of optics, and so they're generally not going to attack a photographer if the photographer doesn't do anything to them. You know, as long as you respect their space, they'll respect yours. And, you know, they'll instigate, but they'll usually let the other party initiate physical confrontation, in my experience. And so I just stand there and I let them sail past me on all sides. And if I'd known what was up ahead that day, I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> uh, I didn't know they were on a, you know, on a war path. So they're, they're just kind of eyeballing me, no words, following them, and I'm running around. And as far as I know, I'm pretty sure I was the only media onto them at that point because the rest of the press was at Trump's rally. There was a photographer I saw, but it must have been a documentarian was embedded with them. It may have been a person in his crew. This is around after 10.30 a.m. And I just take my pictures, doing my thing, and a guy lunges at me. And that was a wake-up call. And so I put up my arms and I'm like, whoa, 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 I'm press, you know, with Rolling Stone. And, and I, I'm yelling this. And, and, and they just snickered and laughed and wisecracks and, and ha, 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 <laughs> you know, rolling, I'm with Rolling Stone, you know. And, and, uh, and then they just started calling me Antifa. And, um, yeah, just making fun of me for a good while. And next 20 minutes, I'm kind of keeping my distance. Uh, so they march and they... Um, I'm not sure where we are, but everyone kneels and there's group prayer. I call it their pre-war prayer. This prayer shot that you have, you've taken the picture at 11.18 a.m. Is that how many people do you think that might yeah, have there been? Yeah, were, there were roughly 250 to 300 militants in, the, in this gang, mm -hmm. this contingent. There's a guy here with a helmet and a flag draped around him like a cape. Well, there is a guy on his phone, it looks like, but a lot of flags, a lot of flags being worn and a lot of flags in the distance in the wind, right? Yeah, you got Trump MAGA flags, you got uh, Betsy Ross flags, you got three percenter flags, you got American flags, they like flags, and you got also, it's you know unmistakable that they have ballistic helmets and flak jackets and tactical vests and and are armed, you know? It's like, you know, people in their tactical vests have scissors, they have bear spray. A lot of them have radios. When I was on the perimeter of the contingent, when they were marching on the mall, they kept relaying my coordinates within the group via someone yelling or, or radioing to the front and stuff, and they would just kind of cycle around. And so it was very, uh, very organized, very planned. And a lot of them had uh, neon orange hats, which were, I think, so usually they wear black and yellow Fred Perry polos. That's kind of their usual dress. They had announced via Twitter that today they were going to be incognito. They were going to just blend in with the what they call Trump normies. Tells you a lot about kind of what where this was going, mm -hmm. uh, that they wanted to use discretion. But I think the neon orange hats were for identifying each other within the broader crowd. When they finish, we march past uh, the only police presence I see all morning. It's a cluster of 10 police officers who are casually putting on riot gear. That's the only uh, men and women in blue I saw all morning. And, and they were at the Capitol? They were on the border of the, the Capitol grounds. And so we're marching there. We're marching to the East Front. And where we meet up with other other demonstrators, and this is where they just line themselves up with the Capitol Dome behind them, and they've staged themselves for photos. 
And it's a big group shot. So they're staging themselves in front of the Capitol, east front. We march again. And, you know, the paramilitary parade continues. And I have no idea where we're headed. It's a you know it's kind of because we're marching around the Capitol and and just not sure where anything is going, and well we arrive at a block uh, lined with uh, food trucks, and so, <laughs> so it was lunchtime. It must have been part of their itinerary, you know they everyone kind of split up and and now I find myself in line with armed insurgents for uh, hot dogs. Because <laughs> I I need to eat too, and so it's just kind of a baffling scene. Lunch lasted about. You know, forty-five minutes, I'd say, roughly, and then, um, and then they kind of get in formation again. They close ranks and they uh, and they go. But while the mood was pretty chill during lunch, their expressions are are much more serious now. Something's changed. We march to the peace monument, and a few during lunch, people are already drifting away from Trump's rally. It's like a slow, steady trickle of people coming in. I've been to probably thirty, thirty-five. Trump appearances over the years. And uh, a lot of people usually leave early because he says the same things over and over. It's been a long day already. And then he's just very redundant and, and they don't last the whole speech. And so people are coming. So the crowd is growing. In the book, I call it a simmering stew. Uh, anyway, we're marching and we, we march to the peace monument and it has an inscription on it. So that the top of the peace monument, uh, it's written, uh, they died that their country might live. I just find it interesting that the whole insurrection started at the Civil War Peace Monument. Uh, suddenly they're chanting uh, war cries, battle cries. They're chanting whose capital, our capital, their fight for Trump, 1776. I'm still confused. <laughs> you know, I'm still kind of in this, okay, we're, we're here and we're chanting. And uh, yeah, and, and I have my back to the Capitol. And suddenly there's a big rush. And I've just missed to my rear. There had only been five patrols at the makeshift perimeter fence, which was just steel bike rack uh, barricades, and which we're all pretty familiar with, I think. They'd confronted the police, and it escalated very fast. And, you know, a year later when I'm watching the New York Times documentary, Day of Rage, which I think everyone should watch, that and HBO's Four Hours at the Capitol, I see myself in the footage and I'm standing right next to the first person who approached the barrier, who started it all. And he had just whispered in the ear of uh, Joe Gibbs, one of the Proud Boys lieutenants leading that day. I'm standing right beside him, the guy who started it all, and I look through my photos and I don't have a single photo of him because I'm standing next to him. But basically, there's this surging bodies, you know, it's just like everyone's surging chance. It becomes mayhem just like that. It happens so quickly. I am not processing what has happened because I have my back to the Capitol and the perimeter fence. But I'm just seeing the sea of people. I mean, I thought it was just the militants and some crowd members from the from lunchtime. And no, no, it is just endless. I'm mesmerized by it. I get distracted with photographing people gingerly walking over these uh, toppled barricades, old and young alike. And to me, that's when they cease to be peaceful protesters once they trespass just like everyone else. This is when they cross that line. You know, this was a secure area leading to the Inauguration Day stage on the Capitol's uh, western front. I'm photographing this people, kind of just incoming herd, and a guy declares, you, you know, he points at my lens and he shoves me off a three foot balustrade. 
something like that. You know, I'm young and uh, mobile and stuff, but even something like that, you can hurt yourself pretty bad. And so uh, I was okay. I'm a good faller. And some people in the crowd were checking to make sure I was okay, apologizing that this man had done that. Okay, so you got him saying yeah, and that, that to you. And that photo is now, that's the photo on the FBI's most wanted list related to the insurrection. But they haven't identified him or found him because he's, he's not only wearing an American flag mask, he's wearing sunglasses and an American flag hat. His face can't be seen at all. And, uh, but he was dressed in all black because they wanted to look like, in their words, Antifa. Uh, Antifa, I think they mean black bloc, which are leftist radicals, anarchists. Usually it's like, you know, you could call the Proud Boys a fight club. And they refer to themselves as Western chauvinists. So on this day, they're ready for opposition. You know, besides the police, they think Antifa is going to meet them there to protect the Capitol or something. I have cameras and I'm wearing an N95 mask. This is in hindsight. This was the deadliest day of the pandemic up to that point. 4,000 people in this country died COVID-related deaths January 6th. So I'm wearing the N95. This others me because this is a largely anti-mask crowd. The masks being worn are predominantly to conceal identity. So I'm othered, but also most of my colleagues are, are much more prepared than I am. They're militarized and protective gear. I mean, they're wearing gas masks, goggles, helmets, flat jackets, knee pads, boots, and a lot of their jackets say press on them. And me, meanwhile, I'm just wearing a maroon hoodie with a Carhartt hat. You know, I basically just look like another white dude for the cause. I fit in, so people are suspicious of me, very suspicious because of my cameras and mask. but they, no one can be 100% certain I'm not just another patriot, quote-unquote, <laughs> who's enlisted myself to capture this uh, moment. So that I think that helped me, actually. But also, when I was pushed, I fell from the forefront of the mob. This crowd is now a mob, and it's a riot, and I have... Basically, I lost my place, my position. And so once we get closer and closer to the inauguration day stage where there's, there's multiple barriers, layers of barriers that they have to get through. And so as we get closer and closer, I'm, I'm not at the very front where all the gore and violence is. And it's probably a really good thing because I'm, I'm not wearing any protective gear except for my N95. And, and it was bear spray everywhere, punches weapons. I mean, it was gnarly. And a lot of brave photojournalists were right up in there. I'm glad I wasn't. I'm at a healthy distance and uh, standing next to a guy who's making sure I don't fall off this five foot retaining wall. And I'm getting quotes still. I'm still trying to get quotes for Rolling Stone, who I'm shooting for. And I think this is one of the last quotes I got because I don't need to supplement my images with too many words. It kind of speaks for itself what was starting to unravel. This guy, uh, he flicks off the, the capital for my lens. And, uh, and that's kind of probably the most, uh, uh, in my opinion, maybe not my favorite shot, but the most iconic shot that I took that day. I want to interject mm-hmm. uh, really quickly. It's mm-hmm. probably obvious in the historical sense. Congress is in session while all of this is happening. Like there are people upholding democracy inside. So this is not just a protest like a theoretical protest of rights. The intention is to disrupt what's going on inside. The police still have the high ground at this point, a thin blue line of outnumbered, ill-equipped police who don't even have riot shields. And they're ultimately, um, over the course of the day, MIT did a study and 
based on the footage, roughly 9,400 people, meaning the police were outnumbered 58 to 1. And they're reluctant. They're very restrained. I've never seen the police so restrained. But it's also because they were ill-equipped with uh, uh, less lethal uh, crowd control munitions at the time. They didn't know if, if they bring out the guns, uh, this could be a massacre of them because this crowd is likely heavily armed as well. So it's just a just quite a contrast to especially protests I've been to in Seattle because in my experience when I'm at these things, uh, these demonstrations, you know, there's these militants who are scary. There's these there's black bloc who are scary because they don't like to be photographed. And but the most scary are usually the police because they've targeted many of my colleagues and I could share anecdote after anecdote. Uh, my friend is 74 years old. He's a Vietnam vet. He's an activist and he likes to go out and just an old bearded guy, 74 years old with his video camera. And he's during the protests of summer of 2020, he, he was shot four times, you know, and, and when they shoot you that many times, that's no accident. They're aiming at you. Basically, this was the first time where throughout the course of the day, I learned that I have nothing to be afraid of as far as the police. They're not after me. They have their kid gloves on. I mean, not just me, but the whole crowd. And also, uh, Lisa, what were some of the things that were most striking to you in looking over the photos and listening to Nate's comments as you asked him questions about the different pictures? When I reviewed these pictures for the first time, that first picture of kind of like the maybe five or ten law enforcement that are casually suiting up to the side was the most striking to me because this is coming off of two years of like heavily militarized police nailing peaceful protesters in cities all over the country, but especially here in Seattle, especially in Portland. Also, you know, in years prior, even at the Capitol for the Women's March, for instance, there's been a significant police presence. And so seeing, you know, this huge troop of heavily militarized insurgents and then this just tiny little kind of like cluster of casual police just seemed egregious and off to me. In June of 2020, I think they had fortified the nation's capital with 5,000 guardsmen. You know, and, and now we have a real threat and they're aware of it and they've they've heard all the rumblings of it on the web. All the evidence has come out that the government knew about it, but they're so afraid of optics that they they it's like a wait and see approach. Whereas Black Lives Matter, black led peaceful protests start with a militarized police force that escalates things and, and you know, I would call many of the riots I've been to police riots and this was the opposite. It ended with a militarized police force. Just barely. <laughs> yeah. And I'd like to add that the U.S. Capitol Police's budget was at the time, and probably still is, larger than major cities like Minneapolis, St. Louis, Seattle, Portland, Oregon. And this happens. I like how there are notes with each of the photos. First, you go through the book and just see the photos with timestamps. But at the end are descriptions of some of the aspects of the photos. So they can be anything from talking about the hand signals that people are using to the clothing to, you know, like what you were saying about, meanwhile, this is happening somewhere else. 
And yeah, it, it really helps um, get little nuggets of so many different types of things. Uh, quite often you just hear, you know, someone talking about one specific thing um, in regards to this event. And this actually expands it. I wanted to put my perspective within the, the overall kind of history of that day, you know, and kind of combine those two. And so I think we've done a nice job of that. And I think I think that's what puts the book over the top. Well, now we're looking at this photo taken at 1.37 p.m. That photojournalist is uh, AP photographer uh, Jim Mincello. And I, and I don't know him personally, but but I, I definitely, the next day after January 6th, his plight went um, viral because he was wearing a GoPro. And he was he was all the way at the front lines, and he was shoved all the way to the back of the inaugural stage, uh, staging area. And then I witnessed him being thrown off a five-foot retaining wall, which I had been standing on when I took the middle finger, the one-finger salute photo uh, earlier. So they've just shoved him off. You know, I don't know if I'm next. And later, those, those uh, as you'll see in photos, people were breaching this retainer wall by repurposing these bike rack barriers as ramps. And so people are using them, and, and, and they even help me up. You know, you just kind of get in line, and they're, they're helping, quote-unquote, fellow patriots up into the main area. Already mid-afternoon, uh, rumors and innuendo were infecting the right-wing media sphere, you know, with lies that this is a false flag operation by Antifa and or FBI provocateurs. Tucker Carlson on Fox News has, has done a three-part documentary called Fedsurrection. You know, but then again, in another place, he'll say, well, January 6th barely rakes as a footnote in our history. But he did a three-part documentary about it. And then you got Trump saying, oh, my words were very calming in my speech preceding the attack. And then he'll say, it was the greatest movement and day in, you know, in American history. His last tweet that he posted before being banned from Twitter was, um, these are the things and events that happen when a sacred landslide election victory is so unceremoniously and viciously stripped away from great patriots who have been badly and unfairly treated for so long. Go home with love and in peace. Remember this day forever. You've got basically all these different narratives because other Republicans have called these these rioters peaceful protesters. It was just they've been trying to downplay it as just a little peaceful tour of the Capitol. Also out there is that these police who are injured, 140 officers, I think New York Times said 150, but most sources are saying 140, you know, they're crisis actors. There are no authorities in sight, just masses of people, lots of flags, mostly white bearded men and uh, some women and then I see a ladder. Um, so what is this? So the stage was still under construction. The scene was still rough around the edges. They still had two weeks before Inauguration Day. I don't know if they got the, this this full-size step ladder from the, the construction. Because the inaugural stage is, is not part of the Capitol. It's, it's built every four years onto the Capitol. Basically, they had overrun the scaffolding where uh, all the press cameras go on Inauguration Day. And the fact that the scene was still under construction, it felt very risky. And that was always kind of a thought in my mind that what if these things don't hold up? You know, because this is an unfinished set piece. You're saying, you know, you were looking at these photos and you're like, oh, I see more weapons, but I don't see weapons. What I say to that is everything is a weapon. These people are 
weaponizing anything they can. Fire extinguishers. In this photo, they have this flag. I mean, if you look closely, you see all sorts of weapons. They're flagpoles. They've fashioned them into flag spears. And so they have pointy tips on the end that are usually just the flag's ornate tip. They're taking the scaffolding apart. That's another reason I was kind of concerned about all these people standing on it, because they were using the planks from the scaffolding as weapons, uh, and they were hurling them like spears. You got multiple step ladders. I'm seeing another one. I, you know, hammers. All, you name it. It's the reason these militants never even went inside the rally, because they would have been wanted and would have had to put down their stuff. But then again, a lot of people went inside the rally where they were leaving their bags outside the rally area. Uh, well, there's only one reason you do that. You got a lot of things that will get taken away. And even Trump in the hearings was saying, you know, they're, you know, they, they're telling him they're armed. You know, this crowd is armed. And he's like, well, take the mags away. Let them, let them effing in. You know, uh, you know, they're not here to hurt me. These men that I was with were probably the I imagine to be the most armed. On this scene, so basically throughout the day, there were eight locations of the Capitol building that were breached. But on this side, on the west side, was breached first. Around 4.30, I decided to summit the crow's nest, which is, again, the, the media platform on scaffolding um, several stories high in the middle of the mob. It, it was very scary because at this point my hands are numb. Uh, I don't fully trust myself, you know, because I'm exhausted. I, I Instead of using my hands to crawl up the ladder, I use my, uh, my arms. It's like an upwards army crawl, wrapping my arms around these rungs. And I get up there, and that's when my phone for the first time starts working again. My phone just starts pinging with a barrage of concerned texts and alerts. And so, and I obviously didn't, couldn't go through it all, but, you know, very scary for my family. And then the Rolling Stone editor, he texts to ask, if I, you know, first of all, are you okay? And then he follows with, did you get inside? It's 4.30, and this is the first time that I am hearing that they've gotten inside. So basically, right in front of me, there's the chute that the president and all the dignitaries walk out on Inauguration Day. It's a tunnel, and it's a bit main entrance. And so basically that's where the battle is going on in this scene. That was where some of the most barbaric fighting took place. It, this, this crowd was going medieval on these police officers. For example, uh, one quote that I didn't hear firsthand that I, U.S. Capitol Police Officer Winston Pinjone recounts the terror inflicted by the mob inside the shoot. You know, he, he says, ripping gas masks off officers' faces, spraying their face with things like WD-40, motor oil, pepper spray, and then pushing the gas mask back on their face and covering the filter so that it's basically suffocating them. They had to breathe in what they were sprayed with. And you can see a lot of this if you watch HBO's Four Hours at the Capitol. On that note, too, one thing that I found interesting was that just like Nate didn't know the Capitol had been breached already, the law enforcement fighting in the shoot didn't know that the Capitol had already been breached in other locations. So they're putting up this last fight, protecting our democracy, unaware that there's already terrorists walking around inside. So this might put it in perspective. This tunnel was also where Officer Michael Fanone was dragged out and beaten and tased to within an inch of his life. And he had to finally appeal to their humanity saying, hey, I have kids. And, and someone must have uh, stepped in and ended it. 
But uh, And to put that in perspective, that is a law enforcement who is on Trump's side and also a Trump voter, supporter. Just to give a scope of like how far this this crowd has detached even from their own. They're beating up a Trump supporter because he was a policeman, but meanwhile, they're flying Blue Lives Matter flags. Later on in the book, there are several photos of these, you know, once the National Guard had arrived and there was more law enforcement there, there are several photos of these kind of like stragglers, like begging the police to step aside, come on, let me in. The dialogue with the police is is so unbelievable. Basically, they're yelling at police, don't make us go against you and pick a side and, you know, be on the right side of history. But meanwhile, while they're doing this, they're punching them. They're beating them up. With no reaction, especially when we put this in context of the police response to peaceful protests and how police were always the first to escalate things. In this situation, the police were pro-de-escalators, which proves that they're capable of that. And I think if anything, this entire day is such a demonstration of like the deep-seated white supremacy that we have in this country. Since I was not at the front lines, uh, you know, in the beginning, I wasn't in the thick of it, but I did get to see a lot of that at the end of the day when it was just stragglers and they were just kind of trying to say, you step aside, you know, it's like, get out of our way, we're saving America, you know, don't make us... You know, basically this crowd has been barbarically weaponizing anything they can. For example, I'm photographing at the end of the day this man who is lifting his shirt up. He's pointing at his belly button. He is showcasing his belly button rubber bullet bruise, which I'd say that three times fast. His name is Robert Scott Palmer of Florida. In the moment, he's yelling, you shot me. I didn't do anything. He's literally like trespassed onto Capitol grounds to disrupt a peaceful election and got a bruise and is mystified. Well, what comes up? I just thought he's another, another, you know, another one of them. Well, he's been served the longest sentence. 63 months behind bars in federal prison for spraying and hurling a fire extinguisher at police, uh, as well as a wooden plank and a pole. Well, imagine if you threw a fire extinguisher at a police and getting only 63 months for that. This is the Justice Department's largest investigation in, in history, you know, as far as the manpower needed and the sprawl of, of resources that they're using and, and, and uh, you know, how much it's in the court system. And so this man, Robert Scott Palmer, was the 65th defendant sentenced. And as of this month, 865 have been arrested and charged with crimes. Basically, you got had different waves of combatants being called forward to attack the police because uh, other ones would be compromised. You know, they'd, they'd get tear gas in their eyes or, or whatnot. But a lot of these people are, are observing. You know, they've trespassed and are just unruly mobs. Basically, you have these this swell of people and it's so interesting that their brains throughout the day were constantly defaulting contiguous recitation of uh, performative patriotism and prayer. They would just out of nowhere, someone would decide to put his hand on his chest and call out the Pledge of Allegiance. And then more of them would start joining in. And then now they're singing the Star Spangled Banner. And now they're reciting the Lord's Prayer. And this was repeated like, I kept seeing this throughout the day, but it's like a messianic fervor of 
Christian radicalism, fundamentalism, and this was a very, very devout crowd. And they were not only doing this for their president, Donald Trump, but for their God. This was a crusade for them. They were, in their minds, they're revolutionaries in the spirit of 1776, um, you know, that you have to rebel against tyranny. That's what they're here doing. From where I stand, I've seen kind of like a commercialization, a capitalization of faith in a lot of places in our country. And I think that Trump really like heightened that and it merged. Now you have people whose faith is intermingled with their politics. God is God, but also Trump is God. How did you see that? Like the Trump is God part? It's on shirts. When it, the insurrection was just starting, you know, the guy's shirt, I think he has a, it looks like a beer and a koozie in his hand. Um, and we hadn't met, spoken to that either. There was I smelled alcohol throughout the day. A lot of these people were day drinking, which hasn't really been articulated in the wider narrative, I don't believe. That was obviously present. So you have this guy with a beer and a koozie, and he has his phone up recording, and his shirt says, Jesus is my savior. Trump is my president. I mean, they are linking them in a way that this was a holy war. Looking at this as a protest from the beginning is wrong. We knew that it wasn't supposed to be a protest. We knew that the intent was to stop the election from happening. I think that maybe there were concerns because the crowd was so armed that things could be way deadlier than they ever would be at when you have a peaceful protest where actual protesters are not armed and are being beaten and overpowered mercilessly. And so this might have been closer to a real fight. You know, yeah. And to speak to that, basically, you know, an example, we were speaking of how these protesters, these stragglers at the end of the day, once the area is being cleared and how they're still pleading with police, you know, to get out of the way. Here's a quote I read that sums up psychological, verbal, and physical abuse. The officer, police officer, recounting the abuse, the psychological, physical, and, and mental abuse they, uh, and verbal abuse they experienced all day, said, we were telling them to back up and get away and stop, and they're telling us they're on our side, and they're doing this for us, and they're saying this as I'm getting punched in my face by one of them. And all of this is fueled by the president's lies, the leader of the free world, and they trust their president. And and meanwhile, you also have it fueled by uh, these conspiracy theories that are rapidly proliferating. That was documentary photographer Nate Gowdy speaking alongside Lisa Van Dam Bates, editor of the photo compilation book Insurrection. Gowdy was at the nation's capital on January 6th, 2021, as a photographer for Rolling Stone magazine. For more KBCS stories and to support our work with a donation, you can visit kbcs.fm.